Sleepy Hollow is a place like no other. A place where the forces of good and evil collide for the fate of the world. Prophecies foretold witnesses destined to protect us all. But will they prevail? Armed with keen insights and the ability to see into dark realms. Well, maybe. Barb and Steve help decipher The Witness Prophecies, a fan podcast dedicated to Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Welcome back, Sleepyheads. This is episode 46 of Witness Prophecies. I'm Steve, and is there a competition for getting humiliated by 12-year-old girls? Because if so, you're kicking butt. (laughs) And I'm Barb, and I get to be part of a secret club. Ooh. So today we're going to be discussing the ninth Sleepy Hollow episode of season four entitled Child's Play, which was written by Francesca X. Hugh and directed by Michael Goh. And it was a very interesting episode, wasn't it, Steve? Indeed it was. And I know some of our fans were kind of was maybe a little too flashbacky to um, Gollum, but after watching it the second time, I kind of got a completely different feel for it. And we'll uh, discuss that as we go on. Well, I'm looking forward to doing that, Steve. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So yeah, we'll talk about that more when we get to the ratings and into the episode discussion. Okay, let's, how about a recap? I can do that for you, Steve. Molly Thomas has been struggling with her new role as a witness and what that means. So her mother, Diana, takes her to the vault as a treat. Jake Wells, Alex Norwood, and Ichabod Crane are delighted to share what they know with young Molly, who is mesmerized. She's part of a secret club. As she and Crane yell into the tunnel so they can hear their voices echo, a special security system for the vault activates, trapping the two of them inside as a monster roars to life below them. The monster is Mr. Stitch, a golem that has taken on the appearance of Molly's childhood imaginary friend. Diana, Jake, and Alex discover that a former Agency 355 employee, Claudia Russell, installed the additional security and Diana and Jake head out to find her. They discover that she has died, but they find a videotape Claudia made speaking of someone named Michael and demons. In Claudia's documents are instructions that can free Molly and Crane from the vault. Molly fits through the ducts, but one of the three levers is stuck, and the vault remains sealed. Much to Crane's horror, Molly decides to find another way out of the tunnels. As she exits, Malcolm Dreyfus is there to introduce himself to her and let her know he is there for her. Creepy. He leaves and Jake and Alex find Molly. Meanwhile, Jenny Mills and Diana are attacked by Mr. Stitch at the Thomas home, but manage to barricade themselves inside. They go to an abandoned amusement park that Molly used to draw to perform a spell that should eliminate the golem. They are attacked and Molly, Jake, and Alex arrive just in time. Molly tells Mr. Stitch to stop, and Jenny finishes the spell. Molly watches as Mr. Stitch disappears. Malcolm is closing Dreyfus Industries as Job listens to his plans to focus on his future. Job is ready to get the second recruit. Dreyfus has seen Molly in his visions and believes that he could be a real father to her. Who is the next recruit? And what evil plans does Dreyfus have in store for Molly? Daddy of the year he will not be. No, I don't think so. And so before we get into that, Steve, I think you've got quite a bit of news for us this week, don't you? Oh, yes, we have a lot of news. All right, let's start with the ratings. Episode 7, Loco Parentis. We have the live plus seven days. 
It tied for 14th in adults' 18 to 49 percentage gain, going from a 0.4 to a 0.9 for an increase of 80%. It was fifth in viewers' percentage gain, going from 1.817 to 3.255 million viewers for an increase of 79%. Very nice. Very, very nice increase. And I hope we'll see even more of that. Yes. Last week's episode, episode eight, Sick Burn, preliminary ratings were a 0.5 and a two share in 18 to 49 with 1.76 million viewers. The final ratings was a 0.5 and a two share with 1.78 million viewers. This week's episode, Child's Play, preliminary ratings, a 0.4 and a one share in 18 to 49 with 1.89 million viewers. Now, Barb asked, how could we get have more viewers than the previous week and our ratings go down? Yeah, that really bugged me, Steve. Yes. I mean, come <laughs> on. How can the ratings go down when there are more viewers? Give me a break. Right. And basically, the, um, the ratings are based on the number of viewers during that time period. And we were up against the finale of Emerald City. And so they had a, a pretty huge jump in viewers from the previous weeks. And so even though we did increase in viewers, their share kind of whittled ours down. And so that's why we don't have a, a high, as high a share as um, we have in the previous weeks. Well, then we should really go up in the uh, live plus seven, I would think, by the time those come out. Absolutely will. All right. We have one other piece of news for everyone from therap.com. How Sleepy Hollow scored latest breakthrough for Asian Americans on and off screen. Friday's Sleepy Hollow episode, Child's Play, achieved something very few shows have before. The episode was written and directed by Asian Americans on a show that already features an Asian American female lead and is steered by an Asian American showrunner. That showrunner, Albert Kim, told The Rap, this wasn't a deliberate plan but a natural progression of what happens when diversity is made a priority in the industry. It wasn't like it was planned that we set out to do an episode where a lot of people involved were Asian American, Kim said. It's one of the happy results of what happens when you emphasize diversity at every level of the creative process. If you make sure to think of diversity both in front of and behind the camera, things like this will happen. Now, the Sleepy Hollow stars... Janina Gavakar, who joined the show in season four, and the episode was written by Francisca Hu and directed by Michael Goh, both newcomers to the series. For Hu, it is her first ever produced TV episode, having joined as a staff writer on Sleepy Hollow after being mentored by Kim while working in a different industry. Goh previously directed episodes of shows including Pretty Little Liars and American Horror Story. So that's why we got a little creepier episode. Ooh, probably so. According to a recent UCLA study, diversity in front of and behind the camera makes business sense for the film and TV industry, though non-white talent both in front of and behind the camera continue to struggle to get hired. It's something Kim has been cognizant of in his career, and especially now as a person in position of power when it comes to hiring and casting. I think it's very important. I take the responsibility very seriously, he said. It's something that I was keenly aware of when I was coming up through the system, making sure that there are people of color at all stages of the creative process. I was able to see firsthand the impact 
that different points of view could have in the creation of the final product. Having writers with diverse backgrounds gave you different viewpoints all the way back to when you're breaking story. And when you're talking about characters, especially, you want a wide range of voices and experience to help fill out the story process. Not to say theirs is their only responsibility, but Francisca, for example, was instrumental in making sure we got details correct in other episodes, not just the ones she wrote, because of her background and experience. And I do the same thing, and I've done the same thing throughout my career. Yeah, very nice. It's, it's a nice shout out to get everyone in front of or behind the, the camera for their talent and what they can bring to the table. So say good for uh, Albert Kim as the showrunner. Absolutely. So, Steve, shall we get into some uh, ratings? Let's do it. What did you give this show? I had originally given it an eight, and after the rewatch, I bumped it up to nine James Bond wannabes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Our little Jake. Oh. Okay, and I gave it 7.5 closed businesses and unemployed workers. Now, I originally had a little higher, and I've, I've watched it three times so far. But I took it down a point just for this whole creepy dad, Dreyfus. He came across to me as kind of a child predator, and it made me really uncomfortable. Actually, I kind of felt like I needed to spray myself down with Lysol and disinfect myself after watching him come on to Molly for like three times. Ugh. Right. It, just, it just felt creepy to me. But I think that I was pretty much alone in, in my opinion on that. Not that he was creepy because he was, but in my 7.5. But that just, it disturbed me. Annette gave it 8.5 Taffy Dolls, which I thought was cute. Julie gave it 8 Mr. Stitches. Justina gave it 8 out of 10 Burned Baby Blankets. And Linda gave it 9.5 Pretty Little Horses, which was the nursery rhyme, to which Annette says that she can't get that music out of her mind. But uh, yeah, I, I, it, looks so, it looks like we were a little bit, we were kind of diverse going from Milo of 7.5 all the way up to Linda's 9.5. So we're exactly, we're, yeah. We're all across the map. I think, again, as you said, people had some very different views about the episode. Yes. And so with that, Steve, shall we start off on Team Witness this week? Let's do it. Well, we start with Crane arriving at the vault, and he's waiting for Alex and Jake to bring them back food. It's always food with him. Yes. And it's not going to be pizza. No. (laughs) I'm surprised. I would think he might like pizza. Yeah, I would too. But Molly does get a little uh, history lesson from uh, Crane with uh, Davy Crockett's cap. And we find out that it's not a raccoon, that it's actually a Wendigo pelt. Yeah, and when that happened, I I just tweeted out to um, M. Raven Metzner. And I just said, please tell me that pelt was not joe and of course he said no never right so i'm like whoo that was just that was a little disturbing too yeah well, i thought it was joe oh no yeah and then we get into a real nice discussion between molly and crane where crane basically tells her where monsters come from they have the talk <laughs> yeah it's the monster talk yes yeah, we're going to have a witness talk here. Where do what monsters come from? Now, of course, when Molly brings up that not all monsters are bad and begins telling him about Mr. Stitch, Crane gets a bit concerned. Wow, he really looked 
very rattled. Yes, he really did. And especially when she started humming the um, the little, all the pretty little horses. Oh, yeah. Because we're all thinking the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Jeremy Crane and the golem. And yes. So Crane definitely picks up on the fact that more than likely Mr. Stitch is going to end up being her golem. And I think that even more than that, it just really made him think again about everything that had happened with with Jeremy, the fact Jeremy, that he, right. he he didn't even know his child growing, you know, he didn't know his kid growing up. Right. Um, he didn't even know he had a child and, you know, for 250 years, that's a long time to go without knowing that you've got a son. Yes. So, of course, he decides to show Molly the tunnels and they get to um, playing the echo game with their hellos. And shortly thereafter, the vault goes into lockdown mode. and. It was pretty hilarious to see how Crane is trying to kind of figure the way a way out because he wants to be he wants to impress Molly, of course. Well, he doesn't want her to panic either. Right. And he's beginning to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking for a switch. Oh, no switch. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, he also knows that here he's been assuring Diana, right, that they're a team and they can protect Molly together. The first time that Molly is really alone in his care, other than the history lesson, he gets them locked in the vault. Or he, well, he doesn't know how they got locked in the vault. But. (laughs) But, but it's, oh my gosh, it's on my watch. Yes, his watch. Exactly. And of course, it probably doesn't help that Crane does explain to Diana about Jeremy and the golem. I guess we really didn't get to see the, you know, he didn't really tell her the whole story where, you know, the golem was going on a mad rampage, killing everything he could find. Yeah, I think that would have really reassured her. Yeah. (laughs) Not. (laughs) Yes. But as Crane finally kind of pulls himself together and starts uh, going about looking for escape routes again, he informs Molly that, yes, that's the lesson for today is to rescue yourself. And of course, Molly, being the smart young lady that she is, later turns around and uses that against him. And that was so funny. Yes, it was. You know, if you stop and think about it, this is really the first time that Crane really would have spent an extended period of time with the same child. And so... I think he's very good with children, but I don't think that he really 100% knows quite what to do when they pull things on him. Of course, Crane is horrified that Molly thinks Pygmalion was an animated movie about farm animals. Yeah, that was great. Yes. (laughs) He was was like, what? What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And of course, he tells her the story how Pygmalion created this statue of a woman who was so beautiful that he begged the um, gods to bring her to life and kind of trying to feel Molly out about, well, is there something that might have, that you might have done that might have brought Mr. Stitch to life? You know, he tells her about Mr. David being attacked. And she was so upset. Yes. She said, no, I don't hate Mr. David. I love Mr. David. Have you done any magic lately, like drawing yes. symbols? She was oh, she was so upset, very insistent she had not done that. Right. Very careful not to have done that. But the big freak out that Crane gets is when Molly 
uses the we got to rescue ourselves speech that he made to her right back at him when they do find a way to remove the additional uh, wards that were placed on the vault. But Crane can't get down there, so um, Molly does. She gets two of the three um, servos turned off, shall we say, and can't get the third one, but undoes the rope and heads to try to find a way out. Boy, did he freak out. Yes. Oh, my gosh. He was completely freaked. Yeah. I mean, we started with his first real extended time of her being in the vault with him. It gets put on lockdown, and now she's wandering around in... In tunnels that she's never been in before, in the dark. Right. And they go all under the city. So, yeah, you bet he's freaked. Yeah. She could have ended up anywhere. And basically, yes, it was close, but not close enough. Yeah. And, of course, they finally are able to get Crane out of the vault because Jenny gets in there and gets the third servo turned off. Crane is so happy to see Jake and Alex, but he is more concerned with Did Jake bring him his food? His Chinese food. It was really a a light week for uh, Tom Meissen this week. So I think that... Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, it seemed like they gave him a little bit of a break. And uh, we certainly had a lot of Molly and Jake and Alex, Diana. And Jenny. Yeah. 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 Jenny was more in the second half, though, than in the, I think, the first half. Yes. So it really uh, rested on the shoulders of some of the other characters. And he got a little bit of a break. And I was wondering, I thought I had, had seen something that he had been sick or something like that. And I was, I, I think, in, in part of the filming of one of the other ones. And I was wondering if perhaps that was the case or if they just wrote it differently to showcase to showcase Molly some more. Because we have not seen her that much this season. Right. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that that was probably part of it. Because the way things are looking right now the most important relationship going forward is going to be Molly and Diana's. I think that they have to definitely uh, resolve some issues very quickly or things could go south even faster. (laughs) Yes, and Malcolm cannot insert himself in there. Right. But how about Miss Jenny? So Jenny. So Jenny wasn't around quite a bit, but she did show up at uh, Diana's home after Crane had updated her about what was going on, stuck in the vault the golem, etc. So Jenny arrived there to try and help figure out why the spell got activated to begin with so they can figure out what they need to do to stop it. And she kind of snuck in quietly on Diana, which flipped Diana out too. Yeah. I I guess, you know, Jenny and Crane are used to monsters. Nobody else is really used to monsters yet. Very true. But there was some very good dialogue between the two of them as they were looking for the blanket to make you know, to make sure that it was still there, which it was. Make sure that the um, all the little artifacts uh, that uh, Jenny has put up are, are still working to help ward off the evil spells. And they had a really good discussion about how Jenny and Abby got closer when they were battling the supernatural. And Diana was saying, hey, I'm, you know, here she was struggling with her daughter. And Jenny is saying, hey, listen, at least, you know, she's kind of telling you what's going on, right? at least a little bit. So it felt like a nice a nice heart-to-heart. And I think that Diana can learn a lot 
from Jenny and Jenny's experiences. And I think the good thing is at least she seems to be open to that. Right. And I think this was one of the more important scenes of the episode because Jenny mentions the issues that she had with Abby. Yes. And they were able to work through them battling the supernatural. Yes. So I think that's, if Diana takes that talk to heart, I think that's what she's going to also have to work on with Molly right? Making, as they go forward. Yeah, making sure they've got that completely open communication. And of course, with in Jenny's case, she had felt abandoned by Abby and that Abby didn't stand by her when, you know, she said she'd seen a demon. And here it seems to be a little bit more on the, that maybe Molly thinks things are sugarcoated, which I know we can, you can talk about as we get into that piece of it. But then as they're on their way out to go look at this amusement, well, as they're going out, I think checking some artifacts, I don't think at that point in time they were ready, they hadn't quite ID'd the amusement park, but they walk out the door and all of a sudden, rut row, there's Mr. Stitch out there and uh, he's attacking both of them. And actually he's really going after Diana. But at least the cool thing was that we saw that artifact that Jenny had put up on the outside of the house. It lit up. Monster yeah. alert, right? Warning, warning, warning. warning. Exactly. <laughs> so then Jenny grabs the shovel and she hits Mr. Stitch with it. But what they realized is that he had to leave because Molly's little toy had to go to, had to, go to bed at night. And right. so he couldn't. Sundown. Yeah. So he had to go to sleep. And so that helped save him after they got back into the house. Yeah, saved by bedtime because Stitch had Diana by the throat. Oh, he, and, yeah. Yeah, thank God the uh, <laughs> bedtime alarm went off. No kidding. So that's when they get back in and they realize that Molly has drawn this amusement park, this abandoned amusement park quite a bit. And so they, so Jenny is speculating that Mr. Stitch would probably be drawn to that site since he's been drawn in the site. Ha ha, get that? It was a bad joke. And she also says that she's had more conversation with Crane. You know, they're they're still talking back on the cell phone, even though he's locked in the vault. And that he thinks that this is an id monster, which is motivated by Molly's primal instincts, but that she doesn't control it. And so Diana's upset. Does my daughter hate me? And Jenny is saying, you know, no, she doesn't. She can't control this thing. It's come out of, again, primal instincts out of, out of the id. And at least she's telling you through this that there are issues that you guys can at least work out. Right. So, again, more Another more of that great dialogue. conversation between Jenny and Diana, helping Diana understand things. Exactly. Very important. Yes. Huge. Now, what I thought was really funny was Jenny says, well, all I have to do is a simple decomposition spell to get rid of Mr. Stitch. And I'm sitting here thinking, a simple spell? Really? Maybe for you, Jenny. But for the rest of us, we're like, huh? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and so that's exactly what she did. They went out to the abandoned um, amusement park. I think it, it would have like a 10-mile radius. If he was within like 10 miles, it would still work. And she draws the circle and all the symbols. And she... Ultimately, she got the spell done after getting whacked once. And once she finally gets that spell into place, well, then poof, there he went. But she was instrumental in in helping identify what this was, how to get rid of it. But as you said, even more so, the conversations that she had with Diana. Right. 
I, I definitely think that was something, given what was occurring, it is going to be huge moving forward. Right. If Diana takes the advice and listen, listens and takes the advice. And she will. I think so, too. She's been listening to them, trying to absorb like a sponge. So, And speaking of Diana and Molly, Steve. <laughs> well, we start out with Diana picking Molly up from school and we find out that Molly's not really into school right now and that's very understandable especially seeing that this is her favorite class her art class and Mr. David of course wonders if uh, things are okay at home which of course they aren't <laughs> they ain't <laughs> nope and of course Diana plays it off fairly well you know yes there's some things going on in her life and of course he immediately wants to talk about it but thank god he's got a um what was it um faculty meeting faculty meeting yes that he had to have so they set up another time now as they're um in the car molly actually um expresses her feelings towards what she's seen so far about Dad not being a dad, be actually being a monster, and Logan being sick from a curse, and the vision of Mr. Crane that is not Mr. Crane, who's scared and alone. And I think that was kind of a hint to Diana that, yes, she feels scared and alone. And everybody keeps trying to protect her and telling her things are going to be okay. Every single one of those adults. Right. And, and, it, and she knows it's not okay. This is weird. This is not normal stuff. Right. So and tell it me just the truth. Keeps happening. You I know. know. Tell me the truth. I'm almost a tweener. Isn't that what they a tween? Is yeah, that what they call them? Pre-tween. Pre-tween. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, "Don't lie to me. Tell me the truth." So Molly decides that it's time for a treat and decides it's time for Molly to visit the vault. And of course, Molly gets the grand entrance the grand embellishment of the vault by Jake, and she is very impressed. She was excited to be there. It was something new, and it would help her learn about being a witness, which is exactly what she wants to know. Yes. She's a highly intelligent and very curious young young girl, and she's just very smart, and this is going to help her understand what all this is about. Yes, it will. Now, as Molly is getting the lecture from Crane about where monsters come from. Of course, she mentions there are good monsters, that she made it up when she was little, one of her first drawings, Mr. Stitch. And I really think that she was also trying to tell Crane that part of the reason that she created this imaginary thing was that she didn't have a dad. And her mom was gone all the time because we do hear Diana a little later on tell Jenny that, yes, at the time that Molly created Mr. Stitch, she was really involved in work. So she was, wasn't there much. So I think that's we're starting to get to the very bottom of what's really going on with Molly. And I think that is the at the raw core of it is she really feels alone her mom's not there for her all the time her dad's never there for her. so 
I think that's where we're going to, and we saw it in this episode where Dreyfus has figured this out too, and that's where he's trying to stick his little fingers in there and try to earn Molly's trust. Yeah, looking for the lonely child. Yes. Hmm. He is such a creep. (laughs) Yes, he is. (laughs) Now, of course, it was really nice that Diana actually, as the vault gets locked down, she first panics. Then they realize, oh, that's probably the safest place in the world to be, right? (laughs) Yeah, really. Ever. And then it hits her, oh, I've got to meet with her teacher. And she doesn't want to go. But Alex and Jake convince her that you can go. We're handling this. Jenny's working on this. Crane's working on this. And they are safe inside. So she goes. And, of course, she doesn't meet with his teacher because Mr. Stitch got there first. But at least Mr. Stitch didn't kill Mr. David. Exactly. That's, I'm trying to think, because normally somebody gets killed in the episodes we watch here. Right. And this and is, I this think, episode, what, no. No one, di- no one died, which I, was awesome. Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. Because only Diana, Mr. David, and Jenny were the ones that Mr. Stitch attacked. Right. In the episode. So. And Mr. Stitch. Stitch went poof, but he doesn't really count because he was just right. an imaginary friend. He wasn't real. No. Other than that left hook, right? Right. <laughs> so we do find out that, yes, Molly is very upset with her mom. And as soon as she admits that to Crane, Diana and Jenny get attacked. And unfortunately, Diana is, and this is the thing that she's going to have to watch is, you know, she immediately thinks that Molly hates her. And Jenny did her best to try to, you know, no, that's not it. She loves you so much, she doesn't want to tell you something that might hurt you. And you're lucky you have something this big slapping you across the face. Yes. <laughs> Basically. And I agree because I think this is critical at this point, especially, yes. as you said, when we saw Malcolm in there and she is young and Molly is still struggling through her childhood. And she'll be into her teenage years when trust of a parent becomes Goes. even more, especially a girl to a to their mother, yes. becomes pretty much non-existent. Yes. And Completely she's going to need them. Yeah, non-existent. Yeah, I'll say it's just non-existent in, in many cases. But she's, they're going to have to get that bonding and that relationship down. Real strong, real quick. Yeah, they are. <laughs> now, of course, we already kind of discussed Molly using the save ourselves to uh, get down into the passageway and get to the the levers and untying the rope and deciding to find another way out. She's very independent. Yes, she's had to be. Diana's not a eight to five working mother. She's an agent, which can take 12, 16 hour days. And we so, know she spent a lot of time with Clara, the babysitter. Right. And unfortunately, as she comes out of the grate, Malcolm beats Jake and Alex there and gets to have a little talk with Molly. And unfortunately, she does not seem to be as afraid of him as she should be, which is definitely scary after we saw the opening vision that Malcolm had of her and him in the future. Yeah, I'll tell you when the hand went around her wrist and yanked her out of the 
tunnel. Right. With the grate removed. At first, I wasn't sure what he might do to her when I saw him. And that was like, ick. And she did appear to be skeptical. And I think right. she as did. As soon as yeah. he said his name was Malcolm, she that kind of brought the alert up in her. But she, I don't think she hasn't heard them talk about Malcolm Dreyfus at all. Maybe not, not. yet. I don't. We don't think. That's right. She may not know. But the fact that he knew her name and he had been following her for a long time. Ugh, ugh, ugh. <laughs> and my brain screamed, "Predator!" Ugh, right. <laughs> and of course, we get a really good scene at the end when they're trying to take care of Mister Stitch. And Molly basically opens up and starts to give it to Diana. Stop telling me everything will be okay when it won't. And don't hide things from me. And Diana basically says, it's okay to be angry. Let it out. But as Mr. Stitch starts to uh, disintegrate, Molly says a sad goodbye. She did. And this is going to sound kind of funny in a way. But as she did, it was as if she was letting her little childhood toy, her link to her past, that that was the way that now she was saying goodbye to her childhood past. And she was going to have to move toward a very early adult future as a witness. Yes. And and it kind of reminded me of um, the last book in the Harry Potter series where he leaves his home for the final time. And um, he's got all the other uh, witches and wizards around him, supporting him to help him escape from Voldemort. And he had his owl with him, Hedwig. And when they were attacked, and oh yeah, spoiler, if you haven't read the Harry Potter books by now, (laughs) I'm going to spoil you. And when he was attacked, and Hedwig came back to try and help him and save him because he had let his owl go. And then he watched her get killed. And that was kind of like, the final falling away of any of his childhood and his innocence. And it was, he was completely adult at that point in time. And I, and I kind of got that sense with this same thing that that was the falling away of her, of her childhood, but boy, she's still a child. So it was kind of sad, kind of heart rendering in a way. Right. Your life is not going to be what you think it's going to be. No, it definitely uh, made a wrong turn in Albuquerque. (laughs) Okay. All righty. How about our fearsome twosome Alex and Jake? Oh my gosh, what a hoot! Uh, there is so much, so much humor that these two have, these two characters have brought to the table this season, and it's been, it's been fantastic. So at first, when we opened up and we see Jake just running through the woods, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a monster after, after him already. Yes, <laughs> worried the heck out of me. You know, here's what we've been talking about, right? Somebody's going to have to rescue Jake. Uh uh-uh. uh not even close. Something is on his trail. It's a 12-year-old girl. Hey, hurry up. You know, you're slowing all the rest of us up. I'm like, oh my gosh. That was so funny. Yes. And best of all is that there's Alex who's videotaping the whole thing. And of course, immediately posted, you know, because what are friends for if not there to mem- memorialize your most embarrassing moments and share them with the world, right? <laughs> exactly. I-, I was laughing so hard. I thought, this is great. This is fantastic. But Jake is absolutely determined. He is so excited to be part of Agency 355, 
you know, this is here, his passion, it's coming to life. And yet there may be monsters and scaries, but this completely optimistic character, he wants to do his best, be his best. And that means get in shape to fight because he thinks he's not worthy. Right. Um, Because he says, hey, uh, Davy Crockett. Sacagawea, heroes. Oh, yeah. And it's like, so he's going to get himself in shape. He's going to be just like them. Yes. (laughs) Oh, but that was hysterical. That was great. So when Molly came to the vault, he threw open the doors and he was there (laughs) greeting, welcoming. He was like a kind of like the circus barker here. Right. And you can see this and that and all these. Oh, he is just, he is in his element and in his glory. He couldn't be more excited to do that. And then Alex gets in on the game, and she's showing Molly this Native American Thunderstone and says, well, I haven't tested it out yet. It's, you know, supposed to ward off lightning. You want to help? So, of course, Molly was excited. Here are these, you know, kind of fun fun adults. Right. Yeah. With neat stuff to play with. (laughs) Exactly. And you knew... Jake was going to go out. He had to go out and get food for Crane because he's going to take care of his Captain Brown beard. Right. And Molly, of course. And when they get back and thump everything gets closed, there's Jake. He's tapping Morse code on the door <laughs> and then shouting at the same time so that Crane, so that Crane can hear him in there. And uh <laughs> yeah, and then Crane comes back with, um, you know, Master Jake, I believe there's we can we found an alternative method. Here's Here's the speaker through which we can communicate. And the, but Jake's he didn't get it the whole time. He was banging on the door no, and shouting and yelling through the door. That was so funny. And Alex is like, "Oh, you've got to be kidding me!" She tried to trade him off to, uh, <laughs> yeah. Pro- told uh, Diana, "Oh, I can go meet with with the teacher if you want him instead." Like you've got to love his enthusiasm, though. He has got to be the most adorable ad. He's more adorable than Molly. I'm sorry. Jake is just, he is one of my faves. No doubt about it. He's so much fun. Now, Alex believes that this brand new security system was probably put into place by Benjamin Banneker to guard the vault against any supernatural threats, but they have no idea what triggered it. So one of the things that Diana did is because they they could see that there were other symbols and numbers that that were written in there and that the numbers, these numbers were carved later. And so this is where Diana, as an agent, was able to say, hey, wait a minute, that's the number of a... That's of an a, ID number. Yeah, that's an ID number for an agent. And and so she's the one who found out who it was, that it was this Claudia Russell, and that the woman had retired and lived out in, what, Gaithersburg, I believe. And so Alex and Jake said, okay, we're going to go talk to Claudia. You go do the teacher thing. Right. And they come to this little house out in the middle of nowhere, kind of a rundown shack. Not exactly the retirement dream. No. And they go knocking at the door. Jake rattles the handle. Thankfully, he moves a little bit to his left because <laughs> kaboom! Shotgun right through the through the uh, door. Big hole where Jake's head would have been. And then Alex is sneaking over and Jake is just like, don't, don't, don't do that. And so she puts her head up, looks through the hole and sees that it's a booby trap. So they go ahead and go back in. But Claudia, she's mummified yeah. in her chair, which was pretty creepy, I thought. Yes, it was, especially seeing that we have no idea what happened to her. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, they said, oh, this place smells. Well, it probably smelled stale, I guess, because it wouldn't smell like a dead body anymore because she'd 
been there for like way too long if we want to get really yeah. if we want to get really gross about it. So, but they start going through all her things and they found a tape that she made where Claudia said that she had to get away from the vault and she had to get away from the demons and she talks about how they were apparently forgotten there that you know, maybe if there are any threats, people just forget about it and they forget about the monsters. And then she right. talks about this friend of hers, Michael, and that she sees him everywhere. And so it's yeah, clear that too some, much bloodshed. Too so much apparently bloodshed. Michael was killed there. And yes, well, every time she was in the vault, she would see him. But did she really say that he was killed? I'm not sure that she actually said he, that he was killed. She just said, yeah, just too much bloodshed. Yeah. The exact words. Yeah, so Michael may not be dead, but we can talk about that. But then they also then brought back a lot of her papers that had a lot of information about the vault in them. And Alex and Jake went through them. Jake realized that the glyphs were Norse-based, but I think that Alex realized that they were both magical and physical, and so that's when they knew that they had to have access to the servo that could only be gotten to through the vault, more or less. And so it was pretty cool to watch as Jake recited the words as he touched the symbols and they began to light up. And then when Molly was downstairs, she, in the tunnel, she watched those symbols light up too. Right. So Jake could, he could learn a lot of the things that Jenny is doing with yes. this supernatural stuff, which I thought was very interesting as well. Right. But after seeing the uh, videotape, it kind of spooks Alex. Oh, she was freaked she, out. Yeah, she figures, hey, this is our fate too. We're we're going to do this and then we're dead. <laughs> and Jake and his um, positive outlook is able to semi-convince her that no, it's not going to happen to them because they've got Crane and Jenny and Diana and all that. So Yeah, well, the Dijin and the... Uh... Fire flu really unnerved her quite right. a bit. And then to see Claudia, a former agent, sitting at her, you know, really, especially when she said, monsters never forget. Yes. <laughs> oh, geez. Because, yeah, Claudia knew that evil was coming for her. And that was, that really got to Alex. It did. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because, of course, then Twitter went a fire itself after they said, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, after Jake is reassuring her because everyone's saying, okay, one of them's going to die before the end of the, of the season. I'm right, thinking, oh right, my gosh, yes. <laughs> let's not go down that path already. But I have to say that when they said it, I thought, holy cow, I thought exactly the same thing because you just don't say stuff like that. It's a setup for something bad happening later. Yes. <laughs> this is such a normal TV trope. So don't do this to us. Not yet. Yeah. Ugh. That would be a bit unnerving, definitely. Yes. And then Alex makes the discovery of the episode. Oh, my gosh. Molly had an e-reader in her backpack. It fell out. And the only thing that I wondered is, how did Alex know to open it up and take a look at it? Or did it, well, or, or I, did it, or did it perhaps crack and enough that Alex was going to open it up to try and make sure that nothing was broken because she's a tinkering kind of girl? And maybe that's actually, when she saw it. No, actually, I think it was... She saw the e-reader, saw where it came from, pulled that up on her computer, uh, saw that Dreyfus was involved with it, and then said, let me find out what's in this thing. Uh, that's, yep, 
that's probably the better way that it went. I agree. Because right. then that's when she, then she said, okay, that means that he targeted Molly, that Dreyfus is behind this whole thing. Right. Now, I'm not sure I completely buy that just yet. I really think that those e-readers went out to all the kids in D.C. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of one of the episodes of uh, Person of Interest in their final exactly. Yes, I know. <laughs> yes. In the final season where, yes, uh, what was it? A Samaritan was trying to influence all the kids by sending them, what, what free computers or free something. Right, yes. Yeah, and I thought exactly the same thing. I'm thought Shades to of Person of Interest. To find out the most talented ones to go recruit. Yes, exactly. And the things that Dreyfus actually said to her sounded very similar. You're the brightest. You're very smart. You're very talented. Watching you for a long time. Right. So does Dreyfus really know that she's a witness? See, and that's now. That's I a, don't think so yet. He may not. Yes, I don't think so. But, he's affili- but he knows she's affiliated with all of those folks. He knows that she's affiliated with them. Right. He has to know that she's Diana's child and Diana's working with Crane. He may not know she's a witness. Yeah, I I don't believe huh. he does. Because it really bothered me. I'm like, how does he know her? I like I like what you think. <laughs> I agree with you completely. Yes, he's impressed with her talents. As a kid that he could that he could use later on. No, to be a father to. Well, okay. But he's seen her but he's already seen her in his visions as well before he felt that he could be a father to her. Right. Because we open up with Dreyfus laying on the bed of nails, wanting to see more of his vision. He knows how the future plays out, but he wants to go beyond it. So, of course, Job puts on the one of the stones and takes a whack at it. Oh, that was just, that looked beyond painful and torturous to me. I mean, because the blood oh, was already good, running, yes. running off of his back when he laid down on the nails right. to begin with. Oh, oh. And to have that happen to you sledgehammer you oh gosh right would have killed him if he wasn't immortal ha ha right and we see back to his vision he's having dinner with molly who is sketching a picture of him as a present she's still the same age as she is so she's not older it's not like we're seeing a a 20 or a 30 year old molly she's still 11 12 13 ish even though we know that in the same vision, Crane is old, Crane. And, and she has seen him as old when she's still young. Right. But the big thing that we get out of this is, is Job, as he comes out of his vision, Job asks him, well, did you get what you needed out of this? And he says, oh, it was far better than anything I could have ever imagined. I'm not alone. Huge. Yeah, that huge. was strange to me. That was very scary. But, yes. But you know, the other thing, though, in the vision is that Molly was giving him the picture as a present, as a thank you. It was a thank you to him. And that, I thought, was very disturbing. Right. Because what is she thanking him for? Right. Making things, everything better for her. In Dreyfus's mind. You still got to remember, this is Dreyfus's vision. That's fair. So That's, he's going to see yeah. it from his point of view. Good point. What he wants to see. And yes, idea of him not being 
alone in his victory, shall we say, is huge for him. And maybe that's part of what attracts him to her is that he feels her aloneness. Exactly. He knows that she feels that way because when they talk, he points that out to her that, yes, you want to see things different in your family, in the world. So he knows what she's going through to a certain extent and knows how to play on those feelings. And I think because she is a child, that automatically puts him into this, yeah, she can give me what I need, but I can give her what she needs, which is a father. And that that was just, ugh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it was. But And because he said that makes me even more sure that he doesn't realize that she's the witness. Hmm. Yeah, kiss Because why, you know... All these bad people that we've seen so far that are trying to take over the world want the witnesses dead or under their control. Yeah, they pretty much want them dead. Right. Which is why I think that Dreyfus's vision where he has Crane in chains is probably smarter because because when the witness dies, there's going to be another witness to take that person's place. Right. And that may be the one thing that he seems to know that none of these others have. But I don't know. I don't think he would want to play father figure to a witness. I just, I just don't. Oh, no way. I don't think so either. Right. Unless he felt that it that he could control her as a child and change her mind and then bring her to the dark side. Yeah. Turn her to the dark side. Yeah. Luke, I am your father. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm sure he will attempt that once he does find out that she is a witness. Because he's going to think that they are meant to be together because that's his vision. Right. He's going to believe what he wants to believe, as you said. Yes. But I'll tell you what, when they were parting and he kind of touched her hand, I just was like, that (laughs) is so gross. (laughs) Yes, that was definitely up there. Very creeptastic. Very much so. And of course, our monster of the week, Mr. Stitch, was a golem and... Very similar to uh, Jeremy's Gollum. Very much so. But this one seemed, I don't, the other one was more lumbering, I'll call it. This one was a little bit more nimble. Right. Well, I'm sure it had to also do with maybe the fact that Molly didn't draw it quite as big and bulky and stiff as what Jeremy was given. Because the dolls in that time period were not uh, (laughs) very flexible, let's say. Agree. (laughs) And it did a fine job of um, being scary and almost getting to our um, team, but fortunately it had a bedtime assigned by Miss Molly. Very fortunate. Yes, which ended up saving her mom, rather whether she knew it or not. And, of course, it was great to see Jenny involved in summoning it out and putting it to its final resting spot. You know, and the interesting thing is that even though it came out of her id and that they believe she had no control over it, that ultimately when she did confront it, it listened to her at the end. Yes. Yes, it did. When she said stop, it stopped. Wasn't going to continue any further and with Molly being there. So, yeah, very interesting that. It was that attuned to her. And I think part of it was because of the Wiccan hex that 
was put in her e-reader that caused it to come out in the first place. Probably so. Maybe so. Yeah. But then it was her power, I think, as a witness. Right. And she took control of that power, maybe probably without really even realizing what she was doing and made it stop. Yes. Shall we move on to side notes? Why don't we? All righty. So the Gollum, actually, that was originally in, um, that was our, in season one, episode 10. It originally aired in the United States on December 9th of 2013. And that was actually the winter finale here in the U.S. Yes, it was. And of course, My we- very first Sleepy Hollow podcast that I did was on that episode. Yeah, wow. What do you know? And of course, we know it was Jeremy Crane's protector, but the here's the creepy part. At the end of that episode, Moloch told Crane that he, Moloch, was coming for Abby's soul and that Crane was going to deliver it to him. And what I kind of felt almost like was a parallel in a way is that this time it's as if Dreyfus is going to try and use Molly to deliver Crane to him. Right. So you've got it kind of opposite, right? It's it's like you're looking uh-huh. at the mirror image. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> that could be creepy. And of course, the Pygmalion story was also recited in season two, episode 17, The Awakening. That was that bell episode where they, you know, the bell, everybody was every time the bell dinged, somebody died, I think, or something right. like that. Yeah. Now, one of our Twitter followers, um, Mary Powers, she tweeted out during the the Pacific Watch, she said that the name Job means persecuted and that the name Malcolm means usurper, which I thought was a very interesting tidbit. And I am sure that our writers were very much aware of what they were doing when they picked those names. Indeed, they were. <laughs> so, yeah, Malcolm the usurper. So maybe he is trying to take over the devil's place. Well, obviously, in his own mind, he thinks he is. Yes. But I think that I still don't think he is ultimately in charge no and of course guts for garters saying garters can be used to hold up shirt sleeves they can also hold up socks and stockings the actual phrase guts for garters dates back at least to the early 19th century and the idea of threatening someone that you will make garters out of their guts is recorded even further back you'll make garters of the guts thou villain Robert Greene's The Scottish History of James IV, circa 1592. To have someone's guts for garters originated in Britain, despite being a long-lived expression there, aided no doubt by the rhythmic alterations, uses of it aren't found in any great numbers in any other countries. It may have well had a literal meaning as it was originated in the Middle Ages when disembowelment was used in the UK for torture and execution. In these more enlightened times, the expression is limited to figurative examples like, I don't want to tell dad that I've scrapped the car, he'll have my guts for garters. Yeah, which of course, this was the expression that Crane used, yeah, (laughs) with Molly, she'll have my guts for garters. So he was clearly freaked over that. (laughs) Yeah. Luckily, things worked out and Diana isn't going to do that for him. Right. Although I, when they when I read this about the disembowelment that was used in the UK for torture and execution, I immediately thought of what was it, Braveheart? That's what they did in Braveheart. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> who gross? <laughs> <laughs> Should we get into some prophecies, Steve? Let's do it. All right, Claudia and Michael. Do we think we'll see her again? Perhaps in another videotape. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking yes. Yeah, I have a feeling that 
there might be multiple videotapes stashed in the vault. Or in her writings, and, and we will perhaps we'll see her as she as she's reading them and they're visualizing whatever she's describing in her mind, maybe a, a journal or a notebook that she may have kept. Right. Michael may have been her husband, lover, friend, or just partner. Yeah, and I think we saw some of some of all of the above flying around on Twitter. Yes, I think so. <laughs> so the question so the question is really what was Michael? So here's something that we haven't talked about. Michael, well, we've we've been speculating about Molly because we know that Abby was the witness. We know Molly took her place. Right. Who was the witness before Crane? Uh, we've never talked about that. Right. And well, it was because Crane was asleep for 250 years. So was that second witness did somebody take over while he was still asleep or has he been the witness for 275 years now. You know, and I don't know. And we haven't learned about that in our, um, I haven't, I, I think we need a book on on Witness 101, right? To kind of right. understand how that works. <laughs> but then I, I had this crazy thought, well, what if Michael had been a witness? Right. And then and then he died. But she has been, she gave up everything in, uh, what, 2011, I think they said, which would be right. six years ago. And he only appeared on the scene you know, three and a half, four years ago. So I thought, well, that timing isn't quite right. So I discarded that theory that maybe Michael had been a witness. Or maybe Michael went to the dark side. Maybe he's a demon now. Who knows? Right. And maybe Michael, you know, we kept thinking that Molly's dad was tied into Abby's bloodline somewhere. Well, maybe Michael was, is Molly's dad's brother. Yeah, that could be. And maybe Michael's not even dead. Right. Maybe Michael just went dark. Who knows? And and I sat there and I thought, I wonder if this is anybody that we've already seen. But I'm I tend to think not. Right. But I don't think so either. Uh but I, I suspect that we're gonna find out relatively <laughs> quickly. And I'm thinking even next week because with only what do we have? We've got four episodes left. Right. So they've gotta they've gotta step this up pretty quickly. And I'm I'm gonna say next week would be would be my guess as to when we learn more about this. Right. And of course, who is Dreyfus's second recruit? Well, you know, we've got some interesting feedback about one of the horsemen. And so I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about that after we listen to that feedback. All right. Because it may be somebody that we have already seen. Yes. Yes. I Strongly, I'm beginning to think that it could be. But now, more to the point, what do you think the Dreyfus is going to do with Molly? He is going to try and find ways to make her feel that she's more miserable so that he can get her with him. Right. So I think he's going to throw things at them that will basically keep Diana away from Molly. Or eliminate her. He's going to try and eliminate. I think that he would try to eliminate her. Does he really know Jake about Jake and Alex yet or not? I'm trying to search back in my memory. I don't don't think so. I don't think so. I think all he's talked to has been Crane and Diana. But he knew where to go to talk to meet Molly, so Yeah, that was pretty creepy too. How did he yes. know where she was going to be? At what right. time? How did he know to mm-hmm. wait for her there? Yeah. And so because of that, I almost 
I almost get the feeling maybe he does know that she's a witness because of his supernatural powers. I don't... Because, yeah, he could watch her through all the iPads or the e-readers. Right. But for him to be there, if he knew exactly where she was going to be, when she would come out, then why would he not know that she's a witness as well? So I... I can I can kind of spin that one either way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very possible to go either way on that one. But then he just wants her as his daughter when he takes over the United States, the world, whatever it is that he wants to take over. And because he thinks he's going to live forever and rule, but I think he's going to be sadly mistaken. Right. Yeah. So I'm really not 100% sure where they're going. Other than, yeah, I agree. He's probably going to try and eliminate those other folks. He believes that he needs the horsemen to not kill Crane. He wants to capture Crane and enslave him. But I don't know. We may need to see a few more visions. Yep. Afraid so. All right. Any uh, any other little theories or prophecies you'd like to talk about? Well, I think we've kind of touched on several of them that I had as we discussed the episode. Yeah, we so. did. Well, then let's get into the humor of the episode with our, what are we going to, we're calling them our witnessisms. Is that what we're calling them? Yeah. We, our witty witnessisms. There we go. We have a new name. All right. Is there a competition for getting humiliated by 12-year-old girls? Because if so, you're kicking butt. That was so great. Yes. Yeah, Alex started the episode off on fire because she turns right around. This is about the vault, isn't it? You find out that we work for the same agency as Davy Crockett and Sacagawea once did, and now you're convinced you need to be James Bond. I know. That was so fantastic. (laughs) Diana... Talking to Molly in the car. Guess you're right. School's overrated. There are a lot of career options that don't require an education. I'm thinking pirates. That would be fun. Yes. Molly goes, oh, we're getting pizza? Crane. Something a little more delectable than Neapolitan flatbread. Oh. Oh. (laughs) And, of course, after hearing Jake pounding on this two feet thick door can you hear me oh gosh uh uh, i believe we have stumbled upon a more effective form of communication master wells (laughs) (laughs) and then he ignores it when jenny arrives at diana's house and of course diana pulls her gun hasn't anyone ever told you not to sneak up on people especially armed people it's a force of habit. Sneaky's kind of my default mode. Yeah, good job, Jenny. <laughs> yes. Of course, one must never sit around and wait for help. Rescue yourself. If there's one lesson from today, let it be that one. And another lesson is book cabinets are lighter without books. Amen. <laughs> yeah, should have saw move that first. Stitch had to go to bed at night to hibernate at sundown. Huh? Saved by bedtime. Yeah. And when Crane sees the uh, entry into where the servers are tiny was was claudia russell a lilliputian yeah (laughs) and of course miss molly has to come back well you did didn't you say we should rescue ourselves that's what we must always do and crane says your mother is going to have my guts for garters great line yes and right over molly's head and as the door opens quiet contemplation had grown quite contemptuous do you have the items i require yeah food (laughs) guess chinese takeout was far and few between in the 18th century you think jake might have been except in china hello (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is where crane was not (laughs) yes 
All right. How about this week's history lesson, Barb? Okay, Steve. So Jake brought up again some of his heroes, got harassed about it a little bit. And as I said, last week we had so much history. Oh, my goodness. There just wasn't enough time to cover it all. So this week I said, okay, we'll go ahead and we're going to talk about Sacagawea. Sacagawea was a show-shown interpreter best known for serving as a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition into the America West, and she was the only woman on that famous excursion. Now, she was born in Lemhi County, Idaho, the daughter of a, of a show-shown chief. When she was about 12 years old, she was captured by Hidatasa Indians, and they were enemies of the, of the Shoshones. She was later sold to a French-Canadian trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau, who made her one of his wives. Apparently, he believed in polygamy. Of course. Sacagawea and her husband lived among the Hidatsa and Mandan Indians in the upper Missouri River area, which is present-day North Dakota. A little cold up there. In November 1804, an expedition led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark entered that area. Often called the Corps of Discovery, the expedition planned to explore the newly acquired western lands and find a route to the Pacific Ocean. And if you recall, all of that land west of the Mississippi River had just been acquired, I believe, in 1799. I'd have to go back and check my history on that. So they wanted to uh, go through these lands and find a route to the Pacific Ocean. The group built Fort Bandit and elected to stay there for the winter. Lewis and Clark met Charbonneau and quickly hired him to serve as an, as an interpreter on their expedition. Now, even though she was pregnant with her first child, Sacagawea was chosen to accompany them on their mission. Lewis and Clark believed that her knowledge of the Shoshone language would later help them in their journey. And this was a big draw. Both she and her husband spoke several different languages, and it was probably going to make it easier for them. In February of 1805, Sacagawea gave birth to a son. Now, despite traveling with a newborn child during the trek, she proved to be helpful in many ways. She was skilled at finding edible plants. When a boat that she was riding on capsized, she was able to save some of its cargo, including important documents and supplies. And she also served as a symbol of peace. A group that was traveling with a woman and child were treated with less suspicion than a group of men alone. In 1809, it is believed that Sacagawea and her husband traveled with their son to St. Louis to see Clark. It is believed that their son remained in the care of the Clark family. Sacagawea gave birth to her second child, a daughter, three years later. Now, only a few months after her daughter's arrival, she reportedly died at Fort Manuel in in what is now Canal, South Dakota, around 1812. And after her death, Clark cared for both of the children, and he ultimately took custody of them. But she was instrumental in helping them successfully make their expedition and explore many of the lands um, that quite a few of which are in our national parks today, particularly Yellowstone. So she had a huge place in American history and exploration of the West. Now, I'm going to put links in the show notes um, to two articles, one from history.com and one to biography.com, if you would like to read more information about Sacagawea. Another great history lesson there, Barb. Thanks, Steve. And so now it's going to be fun time. We've got some feedback. Oh, yes, we do. (laughs) And we're going to start with our audio from Bestie Justina. And here she is. 
Hi, Barb and Steve. I was not overly thrilled with this Sleepy Hollow episode, but it was pretty good. I think the main reason why I have to deduct some points was pointed out directly in the episode. This situation explored in the episode was very much like the previous episode that we had about Jeremy and the Gollum, which Crane pointed out in the episode. So I think for possibly new fans of the show that haven't watched the whole series, this episode could have been far more interesting. But for those of us that have seen every episode, this felt like a recycled concept. So I have to deduct a couple of points for recycling. But I do think that it is a logical way that Molly would deal with processing her emotions of learning she's a witness, thinking for a moment that her father had come back to see her, when really it was a monster, and starting to have very scary visions. So for this reason, I don't blame the writers for reusing this concept because it is logical. Molly would need somewhere for these emotions to go. I absolutely love Ichabod's discussions and interactions with Molly. Jake was adorable in this episode as usual. I don't think I really mind one way or the other whether they put Jake and Alex together as a couple or keep them as friends as long as they keep them as a united unit because I love those characters being together. And oh no, now Dreyfus knows that Molly is a witness. This is not going to turn out good for anyone. Now Dreyfus has horseman blood running through his veins, so he's trying to gather horsemen to himself. I do agree that I think he'll use Robbie Kay's character as Pestilence, since he became supernatural through the fire flu, and it is possible that they'll just keep John Noble's character as the Horseman of War, if they can find a way to resurrect him. And in some mythologies I've read, the Horseman of Famine has been portrayed as a female. So I'm wondering if Dreyfus wants to be a father figure for Molly, raise her up to become his horseman of famine. She also knows how to cook. Food and famine are related, right? Okay, that's sort of a strange stretch. But I'm wondering if that's what's on Dreyfus's mind. And now the Twitter question. How does Michael fit into the story? Perhaps Michael is the missing link that connects Molly's bloodline to Abby's bloodline. We still don't have a clear picture of how that is connected. So maybe Michael is the key to that. Have a great week. Well, Justina, we really appreciate that feedback. You had some great points. Yes, I can definitely understand the recycling since we had seen the Gollum. But one of the things that I think is really interesting that Justina brought up was that she had been reading and she believes that the horsemen of famine, at least in some cases, could be a female. And so this is where I think it gets very, very interesting when you think about that last scene right? when Job and Dreyfus are together and he's put all of his, all of his employees out of work because he's just a great kind of guy. And he and Job are talking about that second recruit and they kind of look over their shoulder and it's a woman. Yeah, one of the uh, board of directors. Uh-huh, and we've seen her before. Made the comment that, yeah, he. I guess one of them came out and said, you know, Dreyfus is just crazy. And she goes, no, he just has uh, bigger things on his mind or achievements to make. Uh-huh. So it sounds like she's very attuned to possibly what he's doing. Yeah, so I want to go back and I want to look at the other... Um 
episode where he fired the board of directors after he became immortal because I know right. she was there earlier, but I don't know if she was at that second board meeting or not. She right. may have been. I've got to go back and take a look and see. I didn't have time to do that. But wouldn't that be a twist? Yes. If she was famine, because I think we decided last week, did we decide last week? Did I decide he was pestilence or am I still going back and forth between those two? <laughs> I think you're going back and forth between the two. <laughs> well, then you can never hold me to uh, a firm theory. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I can, and then I can always claim that I was right or that I was wrong. Because we've already decided that Headless, of course, he's he's still out there. So we know he's he's going to be around. And then we've speculated about Henry Parrish slash Jeremy Crane. Could he come back in some manner, shape, or form again as the Horseman of War? And then we would have all four of them. Yes. But then where does that leave Logan, right? Who knows? Right. So we may have to start thinking about how these people will be used and what their purpose is. Right. Definitely going to have to do that. (laughs) Yeah. But when they had looked back over their shoulder and I thought, huh, I wonder if that woman is going to be, if that board member is going to be, is going to be a recruit and how would they use her? And then when I heard... Justina's feedback, I thought, wow, now wouldn't yeah, that be interesting? It. <laughs> yeah. Nailed it. And who doesn't adore Jake? I mean, come on. <laughs> He's, he is adorable. He really is adorable. Oh, I really like that character. Yes. And it was a lot of fun watching Molly and Crane interact and kind of seeing Crane trying to be a father, but at the same time, not. So it, it it's nice to see kind of his internal conflict at times when he's having to deal with Molly as well. Now, we also got feedback on Facebook. Annette, she gave it a 8.5 Taffy Dolls. Not too happy about Malcolm getting his hands on Molly. Gross. Really yeah. like, yeah, Ugh. really like this team. I think that the show could go far with them. Uh, I, I agree. Yep. Right there with you, Annette. Then Julie gave it um, eight Mr. Stitches. Once again, an awesome job on the monster. I was kind of sad to see it go, though. Kind of reminded me of Jeremy's Golem doll. Definitely not happy about Molly, about Malcolm trying to get his hooks onto Molly, though. None of us like this. No. No. (laughs) No. And Linda gave it 9.5 Pretty Little Horses. I recognize the lullaby Molly was humming early on. I used to sing it to my babies. It has an interesting history that fits well into our story. Funny how lullabies tend to be less than calming, like that poor little baby falling out of the treetop. Yeah, kind of violent, actually. Yes. Yeah, so she she gave us a link. Yes. That gave us some really interesting history. And since some of you guys can't get that song out of your head, I'll just be really kind, and I'll put the link into the blog post if you want to hear it a few more times. Yeah. But we won't play it and torture you here on the podcast, okay? No. But yeah, so she said, said, All the Pretty Little Horses is a southern folk lullaby with an interesting historical background. It is believed that it was originally sung by an African-American slave whose time was completely taken up caring for her master's babies or children, and as such, lacked the time to take care of her own properly. It's hauntingly simple. It's hauntingly simple melody was originally accompanied by lyrics that were a bit less suited for lulling young children to sleep than the edited version we typically hear today. You might find some that know this tune simply as Hushabye. So, interesting. And Todd, thanks for the shout out on your last app. 
Yeah, I'm reinvigorated in this show. Just wanted to say your post-show outro music sounds like I want coffee or I want cocktails as the music plays. I thought that was funny. Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to that a little bit. Maybe I'll have a cocktail yeah, while a I listen deeper, to it. Yeah. There you go. Good. Todd, we're glad you're enjoying it. We are too. And then Herbert, now you had put a, a post out during the week, Steve, that said, hey, you know, if would you want to follow, would you be following one of the founding fathers, basically, if they were on social media today? Right. Yes. And Yeah. And Herbert said, Jefferson would be a, a hoot. Hamilton and Madison would be awesome. Imagine the debate surrounding the Federalist Papers online in real time. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, no, let's, no, <laughs> no, in life, real life, real time. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that was that. All right. Our Twitter, Facebook question of the week, who is Michael and how does he fit in the story? Justina, perhaps he's the missing link that connects Abby and Molly's bloodline. Uh, it's a possibility, maybe. Annette, maybe another agent that worked at the vault. That's, I think that's very uh, true. Linda's, I wonder if he was an earlier witness before Molly, the crane to Claudia. Only if Crane wasn't a witness while he was asleep for 250 years. This bodes badly for the kids in the vault and or Crane and Diana. And Dreyfus did not seem very fatherly. What a way to make him even creepier. Ah, yeah, gross. So, you know, and this is interesting because all three of them had three different theories. Yes. Um, And I had thought, you know, a husband, a lover, something like that originally. So I would say that the writers and the showrunner have done a great job of making us confused and making us think. Yep. They're usually pretty good at that. I think they are too. All right. We want to welcome our new followers on Twitter as well as Facebook. And thanks for all the retweets, interaction, and favorites. This week's shout outs go to M. Raven Metzner, Sleepy Hollow Fox, Sleepy Hollow Riders, Francesca Hugh, who wrote this episode, Zoe Green, Sleepy Hollow Addict, Tom Meissen fans, Pam Woods, Lawrence Griffin, Tiffany T, Annette Nugget, Carol Smith, Andrea Wallenberger, Karen McDonald, Penny Ellington, Aaron Conley, Tom Boy for Life, Danny, Mary Powers, Justina, Diana L, Katina Walker, Joyce Williams, L. Knuckles, Pamela Edwards, Keys, Polly T, Debbie Lamb, Susan, Sarah True, Sherry Mama, GG3, Teresa Albu, Diana, Debbie K, Teresa Albo, Rebecca Mary, Kittle, Julie, Herbert, Todd, Ah uh, Anak, uh, Sarah True, Katen Past, EST, Scarlett, Sheridan Delaney, Cynthia Beck, Sharon Fry, Dada, Vicki Bassinger, Liz, Randy, and Linda. How can they get a hold of us, Barb? They can get a hold of us in a number of different ways. Steve, our voicemail number is 304-837-2278, or you can go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback, where you can use the SpeakPipe widget on the side of the page to record audio, or you can type out your feedback on the form. You can even attach audio feedback. Now, our deadline is Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We know that's a quick turnaround, but you can also go and put some comments on our Facebook page, which is Witness Prophecies. You can engage with us on Twitter at Witness Prof GSM. Steve is at Salyer Steve, and I am at Tangier14. And oh my goodness, we had so much wonderful Twitter. I will tell you, of course, because I'm in Mountain Standard Time, that we trended in, in Phoenix. 
And then um, I tweeted again uh, with the folks on the West Coast, which was um, an hour after the episode had ended. And there was so much tweeting going on that we trended in Phoenix again, even though it wasn't on the air and that was two hours after it had originally aired. So um, you guys are doing a great job of uh, keeping social media alive with Sleepy Hollow. Absolutely. We can't thank the fans enough for all your interaction with us and all the other sleepyheads out there. Now we've come to that time of the episode, the podcast where if you don't want to be spoiled about future episodes, run, run as if Mr. Stitches is after you and it's daylight and it's not yet his bedtime. All right. Episode 10, Insatiable, a monster that's hungry for destruction hits DC on an all new Sleepy Hollow Friday, March 10th. When one of Diana's mentors is targeted by a horrific monster, she decides that the team must channel all of their power towards stopping Dreyfus. Meanwhile, Dreyfus and Job have a breakthrough on a project of which Team Witness may not yet be aware. Hmm. Recruits. Yep. That's what I'm thinking. Yep. Okay. Episode 11 will be the way of the gun. An important connection. Oof. Baby, finally, is revealed on an all-new Sleepy Hollow. I wonder if that's where he's going to find out about Molly. Hmm. Either that or we get a connection from a prayer witness. Anyway, when a mysterious woman finds her way into the vault, the team struggles to understand who she is and with whom her allegiances lie. Meanwhile, Alex must come to terms with her complicated feelings when she finds herself in a tight spot. Oh, no, here we go again. Yeah. Can team witness handle what might be revealed? And so that's going to air on Friday, March the 17th. All right. Episode 12 tomorrow. Team witness gets a grim look into the future on an all new Sleepy Hollow Friday, March 24th. Guest star John Noble returns. Hot diggity dog. Yes. With a glimpse into the dystopian world that could be if Dreyfus comes to power. The team learns more about Laura. Knowing what is at stake, can Team Witness put a stop to the billionaire madman before it's too late? Ooh, that'll yeah. be a good one. And yeah, th so this is the one that you had been heard that you had heard about for quite a while now, right? Right. That yep. we would see the four horsemen, and seeing that we get noble. Uh, let's see. Do we see guest cast? Oh yeah. Well, don't see. They uh, never put. They never Robbie. put headless in here. Right, but, but I was looking for Robbie K. Yeah, I don't see him either. But you know, but, he's he's coming back. He's going to be in right. here somewhere. And sometimes they don't tell you the guest cast, so you can't figure this stuff out ahead of time, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Let's see. And then the thirteenth episode is going to be Freedom. That will be the season finale. And I think at this point in time, even though they haven't announced it, we can safely say that that's going to be on Friday. March the 31st, and that will close out season four of Sleepy Hollow. Yes. And if you want to catch up on some of the great season one and season two stories and monsters, go out and get yourself a copy of Sleepy Hollow, Creating Heroes, Demons, and Monsters, the official making of book by Tara Bennett and Paul Terry. Please review and rate us on iTunes with good ratings and reviews that helps other fans of the show find us as there are other Sleepy Hollow podcasts out there. To subscribe in iTunes to any GSM podcast, go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash iTunes. Tell your friends, and we really do hope you're enjoying our podcast. This is Steve and Agent Thomas. The powers of the imagination are not to be trifled with. 
And this is Barb signing out. And remember, it's really good for us to keep some normal in our lives. See you next week, sleepyheads.